We're embarking on our new series this morning, the series about uh, the book that we're reading together, Soul Keeping, the um, devotional that we are doing together uh, through the workbooks and the small groups and the video presentations during the small groups and, uh, and also the themes of the worship services, which include the sermons. So this morning I'm looking at Luke chapter 9 beginning at verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And the translation in the NIV, I think, probably upsets John Ortberg a little bit because he wants to make sure that we understand that we are more than selves, we are souls. And in many translations, that word, um, what would it profit a person? to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their soul is the word that is used. And we are talking about the soul, the the fact that each of us has a soul. C.S. Lewis said it this way, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or another of these two destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is as to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. It is because we have a soul that we are eternal. It is because we are eternal that we have a God-shaped vacuum, as it is said, Blaise Pascal said, although he didn't say it, inside of us. But let me say what Pascal did say. What else... And he's talking, as C.S. Lewis does too, in the the same article from which I read that, The Weight of Glory, uh, Pascal is speaking of the the longings that are within us, the longings for something more, something outside of ourselves. And the idea, as Lewis says, if you are hungry, if there is such a thing as hunger, there must be such a thing as food. 
because hunger points us to food. And if there is such a thing as the depth of longing that we have within ourselves, there must be such a thing as God or eternity, something that fulfills that longing. And it is our goal in life to find what fulfills that longing. Here's what Pascal said. What else does this craving then this helplessness proclaim that there was once a man in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he sees in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help that he cannot find in those things that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Human beings were created for relationship with God, and there is a longing for God placed deep within us, and that longing is only fulfilled with a relationship with God. And um, that Pascal's quote that I just read is often summarized by people that there is a God-shaped vacuum or a God-shaped hole inside of each of us, which has a very, it depends on which side you look at that from, uh, how you perceive it. Because if it's inside of me, it can't be all that big, right? Well, inside of me may be bigger than inside of you, but still. Um, but if it is God-shaped, then it is infinite. And that's the point that Pascal is making. We tend to think of our needs, our desires as easily fulfilled with one thing or another, and yet that, that gap inside of us is infinite. There is nothing in this world that can fill it. And yet we try, don't we? We think the next new car is going to do it. And the advertisers really want us to think that the next new car will do it or that new kind of soft drink or whatever it might be is going to fulfill that longing within us. And advertisers love that there's this longing within us because they will push just about anything toward us to say, this will do it, this will fulfill that longing, and we keep buying it, literally. And yet, that longing is never fulfilled. My grandparents retired uh, part of the year to a, a place in Florida uh, where they had a boat. And they learned that when you have a boat, you're never satisfied because someone else has a bigger boat. So they watched their neighbors buy a bigger boat. And then it didn't take long before they realized that someone else had an even bigger boat. So they, this, this pattern kept perpetuating of thinking that the next size boat will be the one that makes me feel good, and yet every size boat they got was still smaller than somebody's boat. And whoever has the biggest boat in the world is still not satisfied. All these material things that we try to fill our souls with don't work. We also try to fill our souls to fit, make ourselves feel good with being better than other people, competition, with success, with wealth, 
with relationship. And if you've ever been on the wrong side of a relationship with someone who is trying to fulfill everything that's missing in themselves with you, it's an impossible place to live. I am very upset with whoever it was that told Jerry Maguire, and I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, you complete me. No way. Sorry, it doesn't work. And that, that model for relationship causes so much grief in this world because people are seeking someone else to fulfill something that they can't fulfill, and it causes them to grasp and, and grab and try to get more and more out of this person that the person doesn't even have available to themselves to give because no human being can fulfill that emptiness in your soul. No thing can fulfill that emptiness in your soul. No amount of success or money or fame or power can fulfill that hole in your soul, and yet we keep believing it, don't we? And it doesn't take much research to look at the people who have wealth and fame and worldly success to see that their souls are not fulfilled. The rich and famous and powerful struggle maybe even more than the average person with, these, with this sense that there's something missing. I like how... Um, John Ortberg rewrote the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He wrote it this way. Once a yuppie came to see Jesus. If you're too young to remember the term yuppie, young urban professional, it was a big thing in the 80s. He believed in God. He led a respectable life. And he wanted to make sure he had covered all the bases. Jesus told him he was doing real well. The yuppie was just about to walk away when Jesus mentioned casually that there was just one more small detail to be taken care of. Go liquidate your assets. Write out a check, giving the whole enchilada to World Vision, and then come and hang with me, and you will find that your soul has been saved. Now, I've read that story all my life, but Ortberg twists it to bring it closer to truth, I think, closer to what Jesus was really saying. He's not saying that here's one more thing you have to do to earn your salvation, which for whatever reason, we tend to read the whole of Scripture that way every time, even though we know that our salvation is a gift of God, it's not from ourselves, and it's not something we earn. And yet, we keep reading things that way. And in this passage, many, and, and I've had it taught to me this way, that when you give up everything, that's when God will finally say, you're good enough. And people see this rich young ruler, and they say, well, did he come, did he, did he, did he come to Jesus or not? Does he have eternal life or not? And Ortberg says that's the wrong question, because we're reading it through the wrong lens. When you see it the way Ortberg sees it, and, and you read it this way, you will find that your soul has been saved once you do this. It's not earning God's favor. It's opening yourself to God's favor. It's letting go of those things that hold on to you, that claim 
your soul, but don't fill your soul. And when you can let go of those things and seek God alone, then your soul finally finds the rest that it has been seeking. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 says, Come, all who are thirsty, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. And a couple weeks ago, we finished our series on the letters to the churches in Revelation, and we found this written to the church at Laodicea. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Isaiah said the same thing that Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. You keep striving with your own stuff, your own self, your own efforts to fill this hole in your soul, and I'm offering it to you for free. Come buy from me, he says, and yet he also says it's free. What we get from him is free, and what we get from him finally answers the longings within our souls. So what do we do? Do we work harder to earn our salvation? No, that is given to us. Some of the songs we sang this morning already, what wonderful message that we are no longer slaves to fear. We are claimed by God, children of God. But we need to live into that reality. In other words, to open our souls to God. And that means to put aside those things that keep claiming our souls, that keep claiming our attention, that keep making empty promises that they will fulfill us, and turn them aside and look to God. I love how the psalmist said it. um, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Why are you afraid, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Why are you angry, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And it's interesting, um, because there are so many things in our lives that, that keep us busy, we say, well, I am sorry, I don't have time to devote more time to my relationship with God. And you know what you're saying when you say that? And I think we've all said it, either if not with our mouths, at least with our actions. What we are saying is, I know, I be- yes, I hear it, I hear it, I hear it, that God will fulfill this, this hole in my soul, that, that God will, will relate with me, and that will be wonderful, but I'm still trusting in all of these things that keep me busy, and because of my priorities, I'm demonstrating that I'm trusting them more than I'm trusting God. And, in, and when we do that, we are choosing to keep our souls captive to those things.
if we have such a strong walk with God that our souls are fulfilled in him, even that desire to compete with others will be gone. Dallas Willard gave the challenge that Ortberg um, reiterates. He says, in a competitive situation, pray that the others would be recognized, that they would be successful, that their kids would do well. Imagine what the world would be like if Christians were known for this. And if, if we truly have our sense of self, our sense of fulfillment rooted in God and in a relationship with God that satisfies the desires of our soul, we will want what is good and best for other people. But how often does competition even enter the church? Because we're still striving for a sense of importance that is based on comparing ourselves with someone else rather than in our confidence in God. There's an image I love from Psalm 131. I'm going to find that and read that. Listen, listen for the careful wording of this. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, for I have calmed and quieted myself I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. A weaned child. I read that psalm a number of times before it really clicked what that means. Why is a weaned child with its mother? No longer for milk, no longer for feeding. The weaned child, who no longer needs its mother for food, is there for the relationship with the mother. That is where the satisfaction comes from. That is where the satisfaction with God comes from. We so often think of God as the means to an end. I will believe in God and hope that if I believe strongly enough, God will give me that new car or that relationship or the enough money or what the bigger boat, whatever it might be. And to do that fails to understand what we were truly created for. We were created for a relationship with God for God, not for what God can do for us. And let me say something here. What I'm presenting this morning is a wonderful, beautiful, glorious ideal. It is not something that any of us in this room are likely to achieve long-term, but it is something that we need to remind ourselves of over and over and over again, because it is the truth. And our lives can be lived in, with an ongoing effort to put aside everything that gets in the way of our relationship with God and take in everything that helps us to walk with God and be people who, like a weaned child with her mother, love God for God, enjoy being with God because of who God is, not what God does for us. And with all due apologies 
to Thomas Jefferson and the state of Pennsylvania, the pursuit of happiness is often one of the most frustrating pursuits one can ever endeavor. Pennsylvania, I don't know if you noticed, and our welcome to the state signs has changed our motto to pursue your happiness. Of course, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote that phrase, pursuit of happiness, right here, right just 15 miles away. But so often people think that the pursuit of happiness means that they need to focus on their happiness and do whatever they think is necessary to get their happiness. But what happens is they never are happy because the pursuit of happiness in and of itself causes dissatisfaction. It is when we get our eyes off of our own happiness, even when we get our eyes off of our own souls, that our souls find happiness. Because the soul is made for relationship with God. It is only when we pursue God that we receive happiness. It is only when we pursue God that our souls are satisfied. Ortberg says, if I aim at a life of pleasing myself, I will actually destroy my soul. Whereas if I place honoring God above pleasing myself, then my soul can find true satisfaction. I will never find true satisfaction if I make the goal of my life achieving satisfaction. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Seek God. Seek God knowing that your soul yearns for God, yearns for relationship with God. And do everything it takes to clear the path, to clear your soul, to receive God. And you will find rest. Amen.